Well, hello, brothers and sisters. This is Pastor Taylor. I hope this uh, recording finds you well wherever you are, that you and your family and friends are staying safe in the midst of this epidemic, that you are practicing appropriate social distancing and in some cases self-quarantine. But um, as we are all in our separate places, I felt moved to send out a sermon this week. Uh, I do look forward to our online meetings, our Bible studies, our prayer times. Those have actually been uh, um, pretty sweet considering um, that I do really miss um, seeing you all in person. So I hope you will attend those. Um, but I also wanted to send out this sermon because I felt like I, I had a pastoral word that I wanted to deliver to everyone. I think there's been a little bit of a sense of disappointment um, for Christians in the midst of this epidemic you know, just kind of how how are we supposed to stay connected with the Lord um, if we're not able to gather together? How are we going to have regular contact with his presence um, when we're not able to gather for the Eucharist, for example? Or, you know, we're not able to join our voices together in song. And uh, in the midst of this, I just felt moved to give a bit of a um, sermon. It's kind of a pastoral exhortation about the importance of prioritizing time with God's word um, in the midst of the coronavirus so that you would all be setting aside time to meet with God in scripture as this sort of portable sanctuary in the midst of your house or in the midst of your workplace if you're still going to work, that this would be a place that you would seek to encounter God. So um, as I start this uh, sermon, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I would like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. If you have a Bible or flip there with me in your, with your phone, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And you may know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. There are actually 176 verses in this chapter. It's longer than some books of Scripture. And the whole thing is actually written in the form of an acrostic poem. There are 22 stanzas, eight verses each, that follow the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And what's even more impressive is that every time it switches to a new Hebrew letter, that letter becomes the first letter of all eight verses in that stanza. So today um, we're going to be looking at verses 97 to verses 104. And the Hebrew letter which begins all these verses is the letter Mem. So let's, let's, let me read this passage aloud for us. It says, Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. 
sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I gain understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Amen. Now, as you can see in this passage, there are a lot of different synonyms used to describe Holy Scripture. So we see the word law being used in verse 97, or commandment in verse 98, testimonies, verse 99, precepts, 100, your word, 101, rules, 102. And each of these synonyms helps to communicate one central idea, that God's people are called to live a word-saturated life. Did you know that? If you are a part of the people of God, you are called to live a word-saturated life. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, a beautiful image of a family gathered around the word of God in their day-to-day life. Likewise, Psalm 119 issues three challenges to God's people regarding the Bible. First, it calls us to cherish the word. Second, to understand the word. And third, to obey the word. So cherish, understand, and obey. Let's begin with the first call, the call to cherish the word. The psalmist says in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. And these words are striking to me. Here we meet a disciple who truly loves the scriptures. And not just the poems or the Proverbs or the promises of God. This guy loves the actual laws. The commandments are good news to him. One commentator writes that this psalm, quote, speaks the language of one ravished with moral beauty. Amen. He loves the law because it reveals how life is meant to be lived, how prayers are meant to be prayed, and how God is meant to be praised for who he is. And so the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. Brothers and sisters, reading the Bible is not just a matter of religious obligation to this man. He does it because he loves it. This kind of heartfelt devotion should cause us to ask ourselves, do we love the Word of God? Do we think of our quiet times as religious obligations or an expression of love? Do we read the Bible because we have to or because we get to? The psalmist goes on to say in verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So for him, the Bible was like dessert or like a delicious cup of tea with some honey mixed in. It was the best part of waking up for this man. This verse also calls to mind the Lord's strange command to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3, the Lord says, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And Ezekiel goes on to record, Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. I love that image of eating the scroll, eating the word of God, and it's as sweet as honey. In a similar way, the psalmist here savors the word as the choicest of gifts from the Lord. From beginning to end, Psalm 119 reads like a love poem about Scripture. Now, does that sound odd to any of us? 
Could you see yourself waxing lyrically about the whole of the biblical canon the way that this Israelite does about the law? I remember I heard a story from a missionary to the Middle East years back. He told about a Muslim man who he had been meeting with to discuss Jesus. And this wasn't all that controversial because, of course, Jesus is featured a bit in the Quran. But as time went on, the man became more and more enamored with Jesus, more and more enthralled by him, and he wanted to know more. So the missionary decided to give the Muslim man a gift, and he presented him with this leather-bound copy of the Gospel of Luke in Arabic. And the Muslim man's reaction to this gift shocked the missionary. The Muslim man gave him a serious look and said, This book can teach me more about Jesus? And the missionary said, Yes. And the man lifted the gospel into the air and kissed it with his mouth. Isn't that a beautiful image? Now, make no mistake, this is not an image of idolatry toward a book. That's not the point. It's an act of piety toward the one behind the book, toward the one whom the book reveals. You may know that it's actually customary for Anglican priests to kiss the gospel during the liturgy. And I've always loved that symbol of devotion. But I wonder if any of us would ever think to follow this Muslim man's example during your personal Bible reading at home. Have you ever sat down with your Bible and felt such a sense of gratitude to God for the gift of the scriptures, for the gift of his self-revelation through the written word, that you've literally lifted the holy book up to your mouth and kissed it? Maybe try it sometime when no one else is around as an example and visible sign of your affection for God and for the gift of his word. It might sound a little odd, but I'll bet the author of Psalm 119 kissed a few scrolls in his day. And just like the psalmist, all of God's sons and daughters should cherish the word of God. So that's the first thing. We're called to cherish the word. Number two, we're called to understand the word. It's one thing to love the Bible and another thing to understand it. And in fact, the first thing will not do us much good without the second thing. That's why verses 98 through 99, we see the psalmist celebrating not just the word, but the understanding he's gained through the word. He says in verse 98, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, these might sound like the quintessential memory verses for the arrogant seminary student who wants to tell his aged professors that he has more understanding than them because he meditates on their word. But brothers and sisters, this is not just some empty boast. The word is communicating something of vital importance about the word. That the true source of spiritual understanding for all men and women comes from God's self-revelation, not from our reliance upon human teachers. Consider, for example, the debate between Jesus and the temple priests in Jerusalem during Passion Week. 
Luke 20, verses 1 through 2 says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, so the whole entourage, came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that you gave you this authority? In other words, the priests viewed Jesus' authority as illegitimate. Right? He, he didn't have the proper title. He wasn't ordained. He didn't have a seminary degree or whatever. Later on, Jesus responds by calling them out. He says, you are in error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Matthew 22, verse 29. So the gospel writers want us to be clear that Jesus was wiser than his enemies, that he had more understanding than the highest teachers of his nation, whether Sadducee, scribe, priest, or scholar. Why? Because he meditated on the word. And if this is true about Jesus, how much more so of us? If we don't treat the scriptures as the source of truth, what do we think we know that Jesus didn't know? And this point that Jesus made to the temple priests of his own day is the same point, really, that Martin Luther and the others were making at the time of the Reformation. In his essay on the authority of the fathers, Anglican reformer John Jewell is eager to differentiate between the authority placed on the patristic fathers and the authority placed on the Old and New Testament. He quotes from St. Augustine, who says this, Hear this, the Lord saith. Hear not this, Donatus saith, or Ambrose, or Augustine saith. He said, take away from amongst us any of our own books. Let the book of God come among us. Hear what Christ saith. Hearken to what the truth speaketh. And John Jewell adds, Christ is the wisdom of his Father. He cannot deceive us. Amen. So when we open up the Bible, we go straight to the source, as the Reformers would put it. And while it's a good and right thing and even a biblical thing to have pastors and teachers who help to expound and explain the word to us, that's what I'm doing right now, but we need to remember that we all also have access to the source itself. And we're called to read and wrestle with the Bible for ourselves. The reality of our present moment in the midst of the coronavirus and all this social distancing and self-quarantine measures is that you may not see Pastor John and I very much over the next couple of months, maybe longer. But that doesn't mean that you're cut off from God's word. In fact, we want to encourage everyone to take this opportunity to renew your own commitment to daily Bible reading and prayer. Friends, there can be a sanctuary right in the midst of your house or right in the midst of your work at break time. And that sanctuary is made manifest every time you open up the Word of God. So we want to encourage a renewed 
commitment to read your Bibles and break out your study tools, break out your study Bible, your concordance, whatever helps you to really dig in and challenge yourself to return to the word. Maybe there's a a favorite preacher online. Maybe it's not even Pastor John and I. Oh my, Uh, we will not be offended if you go and listen to some of your favorite Bible teachers and say, you know, I'm trying to understand this passage. It's difficult for me to understand. We will be honored to know that you are wrestling with the word of God throughout this season when we are apart. All right, so we've talked about cherishing the word and we've talked about understanding the word. And lastly, Psalm 119 challenges us, all of us, to be people who obey the word. And really, there's an intimate connection between true understanding and true obedience. We read in verse 100, I understand more than the aged. Why? For I keep your precepts. In other words, there's a special kind of understanding that only grows out of the process of obeying and following God. This kind of knowledge personally connects the knower to the known. I remember when I was first beginning to follow Jesus my freshman year in college, and I was reading the Bible for the first time, and I would come across certain passages and I would be like, that's crazy. (laughs) And uh, other passages where I would just say to myself, I don't want that to be true. But I remember at that time, as I would lay these things before the Lord and I would say, God, if this is true, if this is really true about the world, then I pray that you would reveal that to me and I will follow you. And I remember it was often the case that I felt like I couldn't understand why something would be true or why something would be wise until I sought to put it into practice. And then the Lord would make his word make sense to me. In the opening chapter of the book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer contrasts those who are interested in mere knowledge of God with those who are seeking to follow God. He says it's like the difference between being on a pilgrimage versus being someone who's sitting up on a balcony while the real pilgrims are passing by on the street below. So as a way of wrapping our minds around this difference, let me quote from Packer at length in his preface to Knowing God. He says, The balconiers can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them. They may comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist at all or lead anywhere, what might be seen from different points along it, and so forth. But they are onlookers, and their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical problems of the which way to go or how to make it type, problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action too. He goes on to say, balconiers and travelers may think over the same area, yet their problems differ. Thus, for instance, in relation to evil, the balconier's problem is to find a theoretical explanation for how evil can exist with God's sovereignty and goodness. But the traveler's problem is how to master evil and bring good out of it. Or again, in relation to sin, the balconier 
asks whether racial sinfulness and personal perversity are really credible, while the traveler, knowing sin from within, asks what hope there is of deliverance. Or take the problem of the Godhead, while the balconier is asking how one God could conceivably be three, what sort of unity three could have, and how three who make one can be persons, the traveler wants to know how to show proper honor, love, and trust toward the three persons who are now together at work to bring him out of sin and into glory. And Packer ends this section by saying, Now this is a book for travelers, and it is with travelers' questions that it deals. And I think that's true about the Bible. The Bible is a book for travelers, not just a book for onlookers. The psalmist is a traveler. He can understand more than the aged. Why? Because he keeps God's precepts. I think this image of the pilgrim and the balconier is helpful, but I also find that sometimes the distinction in me is not so clear-cut. Sometimes I'm one, sometimes I'm the other. In the course of the busyness and sinful distractions of life, if I'm not careful, I can end up on the balcony without even realizing that I've stepped out of the pilgrimage. I remember when I first became a campus minister, I, uh, I fell into this spiritual rut for a while and a time when I felt like my devotion to scripture um, grew a bit cold and intellectual. I was still interested, but I was mostly just interested on an intellectual level. I didn't have the fire that I had in my earlier years. And so I remember taking this to the Lord in prayer and I asked the Lord, Lord, why don't I have this fire of love that I had at first? And what I sense the Lord saying to me is that the reason why his word was not on fire for me anymore was because I was no longer reading it to obey it. And so I remember saying to the Lord, well, okay, well, show me something in your word today that I can obey. And uh, at the time I was reading through the book of Proverbs and I came to these verses from Proverbs chapter six, verses six through eight. Uh, It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And I remember those verses of scripture nailed me because I'd really been wrestling with being lazy recently. And I felt the Lord calling me to repent, to turn over a new leaf, to obey his word, to consider the ant, consider her ways and be wise. And so he gave me a way to repent. And I remember that as I repented and followed the Lord into that, there was a sense of that fire of intimacy returning to me. This shows that there's a connection between obedience and cherishing, between experiencing God's presence and repenting before his word. Now, this isn't always the case. It's not always the case that we're feeling distant from God because we're not repenting. But often these things are more connected than we like to admit. So perhaps some of you haven't experienced the presence of God for a while, or perhaps the fire of spiritual love has cooled in your hearts. If this is the case, let me propose a few diagnostic questions to ask yourself. So when is the last time you read the scriptures 
and responded by repenting of your sins? When is the last time you encountered a commandment and said, you know what? Like, no excuses. This applies to me. When's the last time that you were inspired by the Great Commission and you responded by sharing Christ with someone who doesn't know him? You know, one of the things that the Bible says about the Bible is that it's able to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Oftentimes I think our missionary fire has cooled because it's not being fed with the logs of God's word. Now, addressing these questions may be the key to rekindling a sense of deeper love for God in your hearts. Like the psalmist, we are called to a love that obeys and to an obedience that loves. Verses 101 and 102, he says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Amen. Okay, so let's take a moment to summarize and draw to a close. So today we've looked at this beautiful acrostic poem in Psalm 119, which is really a love poem about the Word of God. And we've learned in verses 97 through 104 that we're called to cherish the Word, we're called to understand the Word, and we're called to obey the Word. And really, these three things are all connected. Through obedience, we are made privy to the inner logic of God, and we gain true understanding. And when we understand God through his word and experience the consolation of his love and who he is in himself, we in turn learn to love and to cherish the word as our source of life, as our bread, as our honey. As I record this sermon... I'm sitting at a little swivel chair in my office, and you guys know I'm kind of jittery. I like to walk around, so I'm kind of swinging my chair side to side, and I have the scriptures open. It's a great place to study the Bible. Where is your place set aside for consistent Bible study? I want to challenge you, even as you're listening to this, to grab your Bible and set it in that place right now. It's just a reminder to yourself. Maybe for you, it's not an office or a particular room, but a special chair in the living room or out on the porch, a place where you can study the Bible while you sip your morning coffee. I knew someone who used to have a personal rule not to eat breakfast before he had feasted on the word. It was a tangible way for him to put into practice the words of Jesus, the words that he spoke to the devil while he was being tempted in the wilderness to turn the stones into bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen. Would we know that we need the word even more than we need physical bread? Maybe for some of you, it's more difficult to find an appropriate time or place, either because you have a bunch of noisy roommates or needy children, and it's hard to find a place of peace in your house. And maybe for you, it'd be helpful to leave for work a half hour early and use your car as a portable sanctuary for the word and prayer. Or maybe you can ask your spouse to free you up for an evening walk every night, just to listen to the Bible on audio and respond in prayer. I want to especially commend to you a specific podcast called Pray As You Go, which just presents a way of meditating on the word every day and responding in prayer. There are so many different ways 
to feast on the word. And the point is to find a pattern that's helpful for you. In fact, one other discipline that I would really like to commend to you is the discipline of reading a larger portion of scripture. Um, oftentimes we just, we encounter the Bible in this very um, snippet kind of format, very episodic, and we don't understand the larger story. So maybe for you, it's just to to break out uh, your Bible and read the entire book of James or read the entire book of Ephesians. And maybe that'll only take you 20, 25 minutes. And maybe that's what you do for Bible study several days in a row. Just I'm just going to read all of James today. And then tomorrow I'm going to read all of James again. And then the next day I'm going to read all of James again. And then maybe only after doing that do you slow down and say, all right, now I'm going to just read one chapter. I'm just going to read half a chapter. And then on those days, I'm going to slow down a bit and I'm going to break out my study Bible. I'm going to listen to a sermon about these verses because I want to understand them on a deeper level. As I said, so many ways to enjoy the scriptures. And really, that's the reason why I wanted to send this sermon out this week. Not because I feel like you just need one extra sermon because there's not enough content on the internet, but just on a personal level, I wanted to just deliver this pastoral exhortation to you to challenge you not to waste your time during this epidemic, not to think that somehow God is far from you. He's right there with you. He promises to meet you through his word, maybe to meet with you and your family through his word as you read it before bedtime and pray aloud together. But whatever you do, work out a way to stay connected with the Lord through his word. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.